You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Always a delight to be here, so thank you for the opportunity to be here once again. Um, we are going to be looking again at Romans 6. We looked at that a little bit on um, Friday morning at the Good Friday service, and as uh, Stuart mentioned, kind of in two parts. So he covered one part, and I'm going to be picking up the rest of it. So if you want to have your Bibles open to Romans 6. Last weekend, um, I don't know if you saw the item in the, the Weekend Australian, they published an editorial titled, The Melodrama of the Cross and the, Res- the Resurrection Remain Top of the Pops. Interesting title, and, in, and it actually was a very interesting article that uh, was written from the perspective of Easter as a cultural fixture. It gives us a glimpse of how some people in our world view our celebrations over this entire week. began last Sunday with, with Palm Sunday and now concluding today with Easter Sunday. And while I believe the, the, the article gives a reasonably fair description of the Easter story, the author clearly tips his hand that he really doesn't believe it personally. He dares to ask two key questions in this article. He says, but what faith clings to us in this all but forgotten saga of what life may mean? And then the second question he says, and why do we celebrate this post-Jewish myth of salvation, this revamp of the Passover After a concise retelling of the story, he makes a somewhat startling observation at the very end of of this, this article. He says, the world has a great unbelief in this Easter story from which we take our bearings. It seems too old, too corny, too full of the melodrama of old time religion. So why do we believe any of it? Yes, well, the spirit blows as it will. The story of Easter, the high point of the comedy and tragedy of Christianity, runs through the greatest art and music that we know. There are other immeasurably rich revelations. Think of the face of the Buddha, the richness of Islam, especially in its mystical Sufi aspects, The infinite variety and metaphysical precision of the Hindu traditions. Think of how Eastern Eastern meditation has transformed our world. Yes, but Easter, the cross, and resurrection, Good Friday and Easter Day are us. They have formed us for more than 2,000 years, and there is no getting away from them. The article fascinates me, to be honest, because he is obviously coming from a different perspective than I'm coming from, and probably a different perspective than yours. But I find within this article, within his observations, three dangers that I believe we face every Easter. Not only within society, as he portrays it here, but I find these same dangers within the church. The first is the danger of what I would call secularization. 
the danger of secularization, how much do we allow our culture, how much do we allow our world to define what Easter is and how it should be celebrated? To what extent have we allowed culture to redefine the significance of this story? And I think the same is true at Christmas, isn't it? Events like the events of Easter can provide inspiring content, as he says, for some of the world's greatest music and some of the world's greatest art. But like Christmas, so often we can allow society and culture to take over the details and tell our story for us. The second is what I would call the danger of familiarity. Most of us have heard this story so many times. It is easy to simply yawn our way through it, isn't it? The events are so familiar, they are so common, that we can simply let our minds wander off when we hear the account read once again. But along with the danger of familiarity, there is this desire, this craving to hear something new, something different, something that will really set our ears on fire, something that will really get our attention. Because it is so familiar, we are no longer moved as we reflect on the brutality of the cross. It becomes more and more difficult to picture ourselves in the story. We like to fantasize that if we were Peter, we would have behaved much better than he did. We, we would not have denied Jesus, our Lord, our closest friend. But then we ignore the multiple ways that we have denied him just this past week, don't we? I was reminded as I read through this article that even non-believers can retell the story. I had that experience just a week ago as I was getting my hair cut, and the guy cutting my hair, who was a Buddhist, told me, oh yes, Easter, that's when Jesus died on the cross, that's when he was buried, that's when he came back to life. And I thought, he can retell the major parts of the story. Even non-believers can tell the story. It's so familiar that they can retell it with a degree of accuracy. The third is what I would call the danger of historicity. There are many who acknowledge the events of Easter, but they wonder, so what does that have to do with me today? Jesus was a historical figure. The crucifixion was a historical event. But that was then, 2,000 years ago, and this is today. We live, in a, we live in a day when the prevailing belief about God is that he is distant, he is impersonal, he does not get involved in the affairs of people. There is this admission that, at least in the minds of this particular author, that these myths have formed us for more than 2,000 years, and there's no getting away from them, but that's just a historical event. It's fine to draw on that for our art and our music, but God invading our world today, what does that mean? 
It's easy to think, as this article suggests, that these events have nothing to do with life today. So what does a death so long ago have to do with life here and now, with your life, with my life? The truth is that there is nothing that defines us more as a people, as individuals, than this day. We who call ourselves Christian are absolutely defined by this event, this day. This is who we are, more than Christmas. In Scripture, the totality of Scripture urges us to find our place in the story. You see, Easter is not just Jesus' story. It's not just his life and his death. It is our story. And Romans chapter 6 compels us to find our place in this story. Turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 6. We'll begin reading at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has, who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, To make you obey their passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." If you were with us on Good Friday, Stuart mentioned that we're looking at this passage in two parts. And on Friday, he emphasized, Stuart emphasized um, the Good Friday aspects of of Paul's words here. And they're so well summed up in that phrase in in verse 2 that we have died to sin. And it is right that on Good Friday, we emphasize the death of Jesus. 
But today we pick it up from there and we look at what I would call four lessons, four lingering lessons from the cross of Jesus that all emerge from from this passage right here. Four lessons from the cross of Jesus. First, we have to see in this that God is not distant but that God draws near to us in love. God is not distant. He draws near to us in love. This is absolutely foundational to everything that we are going to say about Easter. And I believe that this is a message that desperately needs to be preached in our day today. As I mentioned earlier, the dominant belief about God in our world today, in our society is that he is distant, he is unconcerned, he is impersonal. There is a contemporary form of deism that is running rampant in our world today that interprets God's patience as apathy. It interprets God's restraint as inability. He is no longer powerful. It interprets God's discipline as mean and vindictive. But when we understand Easter from God's perspective, we understand that none of this is true about God. You see, undergirding everything that we read here in Romans 6 is one foundational truth, and that is that God drew near to his creation. God drew near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. All through these verses, Paul says, we identify with Jesus in his death, but we have to take a step back from that and see that before we can identify with Jesus in his death, that God, through the person of Jesus, had to identify with us in our humanity. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, I think, is one of the most remarkable of all theological truths. But note this well, not only did Jesus identify with us in our humanity, he dares to identify and to experience the worst of humanity. Suffering the shame of guilt and of sin, suffering the violent separation from the Father, suffering the most painful and brutal execution ever devised by man, death on a cross, is long considered one of the most brutal forms of execution that man has ever developed in the history of our existence. This is the God that we see in these verses. The God who draws near to the place where he is not welcomed. The God who searches and seeks and saves lost people. The God who stoops down in order to raise us up. The God who identifies with the very worst in us in order that he can give us the very best of himself. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the God who draws near. This is the God who draws close to us. 
He is no distant, no unconcerned deity, even now, in this time, in this place, in this room, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is here, drawing near to us. He is among us. He is inviting us. He is longing for us to welcome him, to receive him, to invite him in. And we must acknowledge that we are the ones who remain closed and distant from him. This is why the writer of Hebrews can say that Jesus, even now at this time, is our high priest, who understands and who knows everything that we experience. Why? Because he has faced every temptation that you and I have ever faced. Remember that. The next time that you are encountered with a thought, a lie, a temptation that is obviously not from God, I encourage you to do one thing. Speak it back to Jesus and say, I am facing this. And listen to him respond to you and say, yes, I know, I understand, I have been there. I know what it's like. You're not alone. I'm with you in this. I've felt it. I've experienced it. You can have no experience that Jesus can't relate to you in. These these verses emphasize not only the truth that God draws near to his creation, always making the first move in restoring relationship with us, And that is something we see throughout Scripture, that God is always making the first move. We are the ones responding to him, either in obedience or disobedience, acceptance or non-acceptance. God makes the first move. We are the responders in all these ways. But we also see the greatness in this of God's love. The cross is such a place of deep emotion, isn't it? It is such a brutal execution, but it is also such a demonstration of extravagant love, the kind of love that only a holy God could ever display, such deep love. Jesus himself said to his disciples, there is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus did more than that. He gave his life for his enemies. He went beyond what any of us in our human comprehension would ever think is reasonable in giving his life not only for his friends, but for his enemies. I love the words to that old hymn, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow, and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? I love these words from David Redding. He says, there is no other blessing that I can give you. There is no gift so precious, no treasure so refreshing, nothing that can provision you for the journey that we are all making than to tell you that someone is searching diligently for you. 
He is not a stationary God. The expense to which he has gone isn't reasonable, is it? The cross was not a very dignified ransom. To say the least, it was a splurge of love and glory lavishly spent on you and me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. A shepherd having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, leaves the ninety-nine to go after the one, and he searches diligently until he finds it. God is that shepherd. And that is enough to make me laugh and cry. This is the foundational truth that undergirds everything that we see here in Romans 6. We identify with Christ only be, in his death only because he has first identified with us in our broken humanity. The second lesson from the cross that we must see here is that the cross shows us that we are all broken. We are all in need of healing. No one is exempt from this, every single one of us. Stuart covered this so well, I think, on Good Friday. I won't belabor the point. I think he did a good job of explaining this part of it. But I want to emphasize the obvious that permeates this whole passage we cannot overlook the extreme language that Paul uses to describe sin and its effects. It leads, we see here, to brokenness. It leads to death. It separates us from God. It separates us from one another. It separates us even from ourselves. It leads to confusion and, and brokenness within myself. We don't have to look very far to see the effects of, of brokenness and sin in this world and even in our own lives and in our own families. I don't think that we can look at sin simply as behavioral missteps. We have to understand that sin goes much, much deeper. We, we have to see it really for what it is. It is a violent destruction of our human relationships. It is a violent destruction of my relationship with God. Paul notes here, looking back at chapter 5, verse 12, that, that death spread to all men because all have sinned. No one can escape this. Let's be honest, brothers and sisters, this, this has been a grim week around the world, hasn't it? Holy Week began last Sunday with bomb blasts in churches, killing brothers and sisters who are acknowledging their faith in Jesus. And brothers and sisters in the faith in many parts of the world today celebrate Easter, but they do it in secrecy and in hiding. Sin runs rampant through the world, but it also runs rampant through your home, through our lives, through our relationships. It's, it's not something simply to be winked at and ignored and, and played with. You know what the cross teaches me about this? The cross teaches me that I cannot kill my own sinful desires by myself. Only Jesus can do that. If I could 
then what would be the point of the crucifixion? If I could kill those sinful desires myself, what is the point of the cross? The cross teaches me all of this about sin. I can't do anything about it. Only Jesus can. If we haven't learned that, that is so basic about the nature of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, the power of sin. We can't break it. Jesus can. In my flesh, I am determined to keep on living my life according to my desires, my own selfish ways. In my flesh, I will do everything I can to make myself better, to even grow myself spiritually, morally, and religiously. But here at the cross, we are compelled. No, we are invited to cease striving and know fully that he is God and I am not. The cross teaches me that sin is universal, that only God can fully and completely eradicate it from the human heart. The third lesson we learn here at the cross, I think is such an important one. The cross teaches me that my identity is in Christ. My identity is in Christ. Look all through this passage, and we find one of Paul's favorite phrases to describe the foundations of our identity. He uses that term, in Christ. Look, look at this passage. In, in verse 3, we were baptized into Christ Jesus. Verse 11, he says... You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Throughout the passage, he alludes to it. In verse 4, we have been buried with him. Verse 5, we are united with him. Verse 6, we are crucified with Christ. Verse 8, we have died with Christ. In all of his letters, Paul uses the phrase more than 200 times in describing the fullness of our identity in Christ. Here in this passage, as Paul is describing this, this sacrament of baptism, we, we have to understand that there is a much deeper teaching that is going on, something that he is describing here. Because baptism signifies our union with Christ. It is a public declaration that I am entering into this relationship with Jesus. I love the way John Stott, in his way, summarizes so succinctly the, 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 the meaning of this. He says, the essential point that Paul is making is that being a Christian involves a personal, vital identification with Jesus Christ, and that this union with him is dramatically set forth in our baptism. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. First and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Just helping you along. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, Paul picks up this same theme. And he helps us here to understand this new identity we have because of Jesus, because of the death of Jesus. Ephesians 2, look uh, beginning at verse 11. 
He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were, notice that past tense, you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Notice how he is talking about your state before Christ. All of these things you were, separated and alienated and without hope in this world. Verse 13. But now, are those some of the best words in all of Scripture? But now. That is who you were. You are not that person anymore. But now, look what he says, in Christ Jesus. There's our phrase again. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This new identity is what unites all of us who believe in Jesus. It breaks down dividing walls. It breaks down barriers between us. It's why we can come together from such diverse backgrounds and refer to one another as brothers and sisters in the same family. It restores us in our relationship to God, and it restores us in our relationship to each other. But notice verse 19, he says... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It is the cross of Jesus that restores the fullness of our identity that has been tarnished and cheapened by the fall. I remember a few years ago meeting a woman whose first words to me, I will never forget this. Her first words to me were, Hi, my name is Evelyn, and I'm divorced. After saying I was sorry to hear that, I discovered she had been divorced many years. And I realized in the conversation she had formed her identity around this event in her life. This is who I am. This is her first word to me. You know, Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he lists all these things. And some of you were thieves and you were adulterers and you were homosexuals and you were this and you were that and you were that. Such were some of you, but now. You are now in Christ, and that is your true identity. You know what the truth of Scripture, the truth of Easter is that we are no longer defined by our successes or our failures. Sometimes I think our failures define us more than our successes, We are no longer defined by gender. We are no longer defined by race. 
Paul says, the only thing that now defines me and identifies me in God's eyes are this, in Christ. The cross of Jesus restores us to our rightful place in the household of God. You know, the interesting, one, of the, one, of the, one of the interesting things that Martin Luther identifies about the gospel, he says, Scripture is, the, it, it teaches us to see that ours is a faith of pronouns. We must read this in the first person. I dare you to go sometime today, go through and read this passage in the first person what are, we to, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can I who died to sin still live in it? Do you not that know that I have been baptized into Christ, that I, am, that I have been raised with Christ, that I, will, that I will enjoy fellowship with him? I can go through this passage, read it in the first person. That is who I am. That is my true identity. When I fully understand my identity in Jesus Christ, I see the world for what it truly is, and I no longer allow the world to conform me to its mold. I believe that most of us live in a perpetual state of identity confusion. Who am I is one of the most basic questions that we ask ourselves. And most of us take an entire lifetime to try and answer that question. It's only through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we can come to know our true identity. Here's how one of my friends puts it so beautifully. He says, The biblical view of the person is that we come to know who and what we are only in relation to the indwelling spirit. In this relationship alone, we have the opportunity to rest, not in what we have done or accomplished, but in the fact that we are home, that we are loved, that we are known. Here we are found. God literally inhabits our spirit and makes a home in us. Now I am finally at home. I am in the beloved. I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. By God's Spirit. I believe we need to tell ourselves this truth every single day. Every morning when I wake up, there are two truths that I speak to myself. I say them out loud. We sometimes, my wife and I, say them to each other. Because there are truths we need to tell ourselves. Because the world will not, will not support it. The first truth we tell ourselves is this. Maybe this is the day that Jesus will return. I want to live every single moment of my life in the reality that Jesus is coming back to put this world back in its right order. And the second truth I tell myself every morning is this. I am in Christ, and Christ is in me, and that is my true identity. And I say, Jesus, you help me to live that reality today. Say it with me. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. That is my true identity. This same friend will sometimes say, who am I? 
I am Christ in me. That's my true identity. You know, as soon as you walk out these doors today, that's going to be tested. That's why we need to say it to each other. That's why we speak truth to each other. Some days it's easier to believe it than others, but it's true. Say it to yourself. The fourth lesson from the cross is this. The cross of Jesus reminds me that I was created for something greater than this world has to offer. I was created for something much greater than what this world ever has to offer me. Paul says in verse 4 that we are raised with Jesus so that we might walk in newness of life. He says in verse 5 that we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. He says in verse 8, we will live with him. He says in verse 11, we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 13 that we are to present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. There is nothing in the world that gives us hope more than the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and came back to life. And scripture teaches us that we who believe in him will share in the fullness of that experience. When we see these events, we will experience the same thing that Jesus experienced. The virtue of hope focuses us not on the things of this world, but it focuses us on the reality of the eternal world. I do not believe that it is either escapism or wishful thinking to set our minds on the things above where Christ is, seated in heavenly places. Scripture repeatedly urges us to set our minds not on the things of this world, but to, to set our minds on heaven. This kind of hope, I believe, will have two immediate benefits, even today. First, it gives me perspective in this world. You know, without the hope of the cross, as I read the news and as I listen to the reports around the world, I would collapse in despair. I would. It is only the cross and ultimately the return of Jesus that gives me any sense of hope that the injustice and the woundedness and the brokenness of this world will be healed. The second thing it gives us is a message for this world. You know, brothers and sisters, we have a message that other people desperately need to hear. And it is when we lose sight of the cross, when we lose sight of eternity, when we live so much for today that we lose our influence and we lose our effectiveness in this world. When we lose sight of heaven, when we lose sight of eternity, when we, when we lose sight of being raised with Jesus, we lose our saltiness. Our light is extinguished. Just a few months ago, my brother and I stood at the side of our mother's grave. 
as we said goodbye to her. And as I stood in that place, I realized the fullness and the power of this message. Nothing gave me greater hope, and nothing gave me a greater message to preach at her funeral than the reality that she is more alive today than she ever was in her life. Because sickness and disease, I love the way you, you said it on Friday, the disease is dead. My mother sees Jesus face to face without sin corrupting her view of him. And brothers and sisters, that is our experience. That is our hope. And that is our message. Love these words of C.S. Lewis. He says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. That's heaven. Which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under. I must never turn aside from it. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Are we helping one another in that journey to that country, to that place? In his great work, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan tells the story of Pilgrim and his journey to find that rest that his soul so desperately longed for. Like so many people today, this young man in the story, Christian, is, is so aware of his brokenness and he, he is in such despair and that despair is de depicted in the story by a heavy pack that he carries on his back. And he can't get rid of it. He can't take it off. He can't throw it down. And he longs to find the place where the burden will be lifted from him. And so Bunyan describes this journey. He ran thus until he came to a place somewhat ascending a hill. And upon that place stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom, there was a sepulcher, a tomb. And so I saw that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell from off of his back and it began to tumble, and it so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. And then was Christian glad and lightsome, and he said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And he stood still a while to look and to wonder, for it was very surprising to him that at the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden. And he looked, therefore, and he looked again, even until the springs that were in his eyes sent water down his cheeks. 
And now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, there were three shining ones came to him, and they saluted him, peace be to you. The first one said to him, your sins are forgiven you. The second stripped him of his rags, his old identity, and clothed him with a change of raiment. And the third also set a mark upon his forehead, a new name, and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look, up, look on as he ran, and that he would give it in at the celestial gate. And then they went on their way. And Christian gave three leaps for joy. And he went on singing, Thus far did I come with, laden with my sin. Nothing could ease the grief that I was in until I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross. Blessed sepulcher, no, blessed rather be the man that was put there to shame for me. Let's pray. Reflect on that last illustration, that last picture. What is that burden of shame? What is in that, that pack that you carry? The guilt, the sin, the woundedness. Drop it. Drop it at the cross of Jesus and watch it roll into that tomb never to emerge again. Lay it down. Jesus offers you relief. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you a new identity in Christ. Don't hold him off one more minute. Jesus, we thank you for this completed work at the cross. Thank you for the life that we live because you are alive today. Thank you for the freedom from our sin, from our guilt, from our shame, freedom from the old way of life, the newness of life in walking with you. Help us by faith to grasp what is being offered. 
I pray for every single one of us that we would find our name written in this story. It is not just Jesus' story. It is my story. It is your story. And help us to be faithful to proclaim this truth. Help us to live the new life that is offered through the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the coming again of Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Indeed. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.